Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10% True Podcast. Quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts, and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content, and if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel, that would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Stinger, welcome back to 10% True. It's been a while. It's good to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. We uh, obviously have had a couple of conversations. So you talked a bit about your experiences over Syria while you were stationed at Lake Anith as a weapon systems officer in the Strike Eagle. I'll put a link in the description uh, for anybody who hasn't seen that. Go and watch that. But we're going to go back in time uh, for this conversation then and, and look at um, your conversion to, um, well, from a, a navigator in the US Air Force to, to a pilot in your experiences at UPT. And then we'll talk hopefully a bit about what it's like to fly the Strike Eagle uh, from the front seat. That wasn't a question. That was a statement. So I don't know why I paused there. <laughs> uh, so, so what? What was your? Because you were already a pilot, so you had a commercial license. You'd flown uh, jets, um, you know, for for a friend of yours who's who, who owns some. Um, what was it like then going to UPT and effectively having to start again, as far as the Air Force was concerned? Uh, it it was definitely an interesting experience. Um, when I was flying civilian wise, um, most of my uh, time flying was in, you know, a bunch of different types of airplanes, but I was never really good. I don't, I wasn't a really great pilot. I think I, you know, I was always good at bullshitting and, you know, weaseling my way into, you know, the cockpit of whatever airplane to be able to fly it and stuff and gather some more experience. Um, so when I went to nav school, um, it was a kind of a hiatus from, you know, the front seat or from pilot decision-making, um, you do a little bit of stuff at nav school when it comes to flying a T six, uh, but it's all from the back seat, and it doesn't really build a lot of um, piloting command decision type uh, making that you need to do, you know, as a pilot in the future. Um, it really focuses on things that are or skill sets that are important to you know being a nav, uh, you know, in whatever airframe or being a weapon system officer and you know a, a bomber or fighter. Um, so some of the aviation familiarity is still there, but as I went on, 
um, in the Strike Eagle, you know, you get a chance to fly from the backseat a bunch because there's a dual there's dual controls there, uh, which is great. Um, but still, you're not really part of the day to day front seat operation of that airplane. So I tried to stay current as much as I could by taking flights back to the U.S. and flying uh, whether it was the L39 or you know whatever other uh, aircraft to try to get the blood flowing as far as a, uh, a piloting command sort of thing. However, um, when I went to UPT, um, it was not really starting over again because I was very familiar and I had, you know, quite a few thousand hours of flying civilian, um, but it was still um, getting back into the swing of things. And with UPT, the way that they kind of structure the program is you push through a bunch of academics at first, uh, which is a very um, hardcore concentration within systems, um, aircraft systems, instruments, and local flying procedures all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then you get into the T6, which is a single engine turboprop. Um, and it's a super fun airplane to fly and it's super easy uh, to fly. As a matter of fact, it's easier than most civilian aircraft are to fly uh, based on how it's kind of mecked uh, within the cockpit. Anyways, uh, did that for a bit and it con- they concentrate on, you know, uh, basic maneuvers and uh, getting a handle on the airplane uh, and then you gradually go into instruments and being able to, you know, fly without referencing uh, anything going on outside, just flying, referencing the instruments uh, in your cockpit. And then you go on to formation. Uh, and then uh, where I went to at Shepard, they have a little emphasis on uh, tactical formations and like low levels um, as well. So you do a few cross countries, do some low levels, some formation work. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and then you transition to the T-38 and the T-38 transition is um, much more distinct uh, going from the T-6 to the T-38 based on the performance of the T-38. Uh, the T-38 is a, uh, overall, it's a pretty easy airplane to fly, um, but it has some characteristics that will kill you in no time at all. Um, and you've seen some of the um, accidents that revolve around uh, the T-38, and they usually lose a couple a year uh, based on, whether it's a mechanical error, pilot error, uh, the, it, the really old airframes and some of the airframes that we were flying were early 60s airframes um, that had, you know, just tens of thousands of hours on them. So the speeds in which the T-38 flies is very similar to what most fighters uh, fly. So that's kind of why you go there. And the, the performance is sort of similar. Um, it's a bit more underpowered than most fighters that you go to. Um, but it requires very disciplined pilot decision-making and very deliberate actions and familiarity with systems and instruments and trying to think fast. Um, so all the things that you're doing in the T6 were happening uh, slow, relatively speaking, in the T38. They're essentially the same things, but they're happening much, much faster. Um, so overall, that sort of polishes you through this pilot training program to be able to deal with the speed in which decisions are made in fighters. So uh, to get back to your point of uh, going from the civilian pilot transition to being a WIZO to then going to pilot training, uh, some of the speed in which decisions were made and familiarity with formation and instruments and how fighters generally operate, how they fly, uh, um, was there. Uh, take that back to uh, pilot training, start over again. Now you start to learn all the little details of what it's like to be really in the front seat and how to operate that. Um, So it was a learning process for sure going through uh, UPT. 
Um, some of the stuff was already there. And, uh, but o- overall, it's filling in all the blanks. It's learning, it's polishing, it's doing all that sort of stuff. And um, UPT, uh, it has to be very pedantic in the way that it's structured because uh, you want to, to try to provide as, as solid of a baseline as you can for aviators that are going into fighters. Um, so you don't want instructors to, to gloss over things. So it's very, very structured, uh, a lot of rote memorization and a lot of, uh, you know, memorizing numbers and speeds and all this sort of stuff and checklists and, you know, everything. Um, that doesn't necessarily build the best decision-making because the environment is so structured, if that makes sense. So usually the decision-making comes a little bit later on when you go to the fighters and then you start going through a flight lead upgrade, et cetera, you know, and you start making decisions on your own. Hopefully by that time you've captured enough airmanship to be able to make good decisions uh, from the front seat. So, um, so overall that transition was, um, I found it to be easy, uh, but, frustrating at times and overall, you know, seemed to work out like it seemed to work out pretty well. Um, the moving on from the T 38 to, uh, IFF, which is introduction to fighter fundamentals is when you start to learn all the basic fighter maneuvers, how to maneuver the airplane tactically with another airframe and et cetera. The, the only, interesting thing about uh, IFF is really it's based on a kind of a 1970s syllabus of what is required to make a good fighter pilot. Um, and a lot of people would call that, uh, call those fundamentals where there's very, very precise uh, formation flying when it comes to being at the right place at the right time. Um, and some of the setups for BFM are, are super canned, you know, pre-planned choreography um, and it, it mirrors a lot of the um, initial hacks at uh, fighting that the F-15A model had, which evolved out of some experiences with the F-4, et cetera. So it's not really, it's not really updated, uh, and it wasn't really getting updated as I was going through. So it's very, it's kind of old. Um, so going from a fighter, like a, um, you know, kind of a frontline fighter, and having combat uh, experiences, and then going to IFF where. There was a lot of pedantic um, stuff, and you know, most of it had little relevance um, to modern fighting, in, in, or, or or even modern being a modern aviator. Um, and the harp that things were so structured that the decision making kind of took a hit, um, and then that they just didn't have really the the tactical evolution that you would expect out of the. Uh, that would happen in the fighter world uh, later on. So I, I thought the IFF could use a little bit of re- rejuvenation as far as what, what really matters um, as a wingman in the CAF and, uh, or the combat air force. So that, that was my only take on that. I mean, all of it was, was pretty fun and there were some really good basics that were taught. Like the, I, I don't want to short sell that um, the way IFF breaks down is that they, um, you start off and you do some, air-to-air uh, oriented stuff where you do uh, BFM and, you know, the like, and then you move to um, some surface attack stuff where you start to do kind of manual bombing deliveries and you do um, strafe, uh, you know, shooting the gun 
I guess, the targets on the ground and you do some close air support stuff and then you kind of bring it all together for this finalized sort of sat ride where you do, you know, sort of an ingress uh, picture and then you are able to attack a target and then run back out. So um, all, all that's fine, but it could definitely use a lot more updating. And it part of the problem is is a function of using the T-38, which is a just an old, old, old trainer it's super simple and it's super old and there's only so much that you can do with it. So, um, so that, that pretty much encompasses all of that, um, up into the B course. Um, before you start on that then Stinger, um, can you give some examples then of the kind of decision-making that you're talking about and, and how that differed from the decision-making you've been doing as a sort of, you know, multi thousand thousand hour civilian pilot? So the, I guess from the commercial side, because I, I think the military decision-making um, from you know, the WISO side and even the combat side is, is a little bit different than the commercial uh, aviation decision-making. And a lot of that came from uh, operating, operating in a environment where the uh, circumstances or the context was continually changing. Uh, was kind of a fact of life of the commercial uh, commercial aviation. Um, you were always finding scenarios where you just had to figure it out and no one was going to hold your hand uh, through the decision-making. Whether you had uh, a jet that you know, broke down at an airport with no maintenance facilities, okay, how are you going to figure out what's wrong? How are you going to get it fixed? Or weather-making decision when you have somebody who is giving you a paycheck, um, telling you that you need to press into, you know, sketchy conditions. Are you going to do it or not? And then what's your level of comfort as far as uh, weather goes and how are you going to build experience and what preventative measures are you going to take or what compromises are you going to make to be able to accommodate that? Um, and then learning different types of airframes. You know, as a civilian pilot, I flew something like 50, 50 different types of airframes, um, so in the air force, usually you're just, you, you, you know, go through the T6, the T38, or if you go heavies, you fly the T1, uh, and then you go into your major weapon system and then that's it. There's no jumping forth, you know, jumping back and forth between jets. And when we were flying uh, corporate, it was, it was no problem whatsoever to jump between three or four different jets. And then you had to kind of know what to do with all of them, um, so, and, and what nuances, you know, each one had and, and all the stuff that was unwritten, um, that wasn't written in a manual, uh, that you just kind of knew from experience about, okay, this is a better technique to do than this is, or, you know, whatever. Uh, so in the military, your decisions are pretty clear cut. As a matter of fact, in the air force, there's usually a manual for everything that tells you exactly how you're going to make a decision. You can you know exactly what minimums you're going to go down to based on your experience. You know uh, you know weather minimums. You know uh, you, you have a soft or a supervisor of flying that's going to uh, make an alternate decision for you, or or you know any of that sort of stuff. So um, the a lot of military pilots and a lot of younger military pilots become accustomed to the system that creates this sort of uh, these training wheels or these uh, decisions that are, 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 are already made for you and canned and, and they, they reflect best safety practices and all this sort of stuff. So when something happens that's abnormal or, um, 
you know, something you wouldn't normally find yourself in, or you, you would have to make a decision sometimes in the military, then, um, it's, it's kind of roll of the bones, whether you're going to make that decision, you know, well, based on all the airmanship that you've accumulated and all the things that you've noticed and everything, or you're going to be kind of the dumb wingman who's not able to make his own decisions and who's relying on somebody else to make them for you. Um, so from a overall flying perspective, I feel like UPT, uh, and then IFF did sort of a, didn't do the best job of throwing that out there and they didn't hold that, um, ability to make those decisions very valuable either. Uh, when you go to take a check ride in UPT or whatever, as long as you can do the exact choreography, it's kind of like dancing. Um, if, if your wife takes you to some, you know, uh, I don't know, dance studio or whatever, and you have to follow this certain lines, that, that's pretty much that describes a UPT check ride. It has nothing to do whatsoever with your, um, you know, true airmanship or ability or decision-making. Uh, it's realistically, it's just you go to the airspace that you've been going to ever since you started. You do the maneuvers that you were doing ever since you started. Uh, you come back, you do the same approach that you've been doing uh, in instruments that you've ever done. Uh, and then you land at the same field you've always landed at. Um, and then you, you know, you call it good. And even for a lot of fighters, I mean, you know, you come back, you, you fight in the same essentially the same airspace that you have been fighting in since you uh, started at the base and you land at the state you land at your own airfield, you know, you come back uh, there. So you don't really land at a lot of different places and stuff. And they get a little bit more experience to that with the, with, with the heavy community, but uh, in the fighter community, it's, it's, it's pretty structured. Um, so from the commercial perspective, there was a lot more of that, a lot more of, uh, Hey, no one's going to tell me how to take a temporary registration for an airplane internationally. I'm going to have to go get a flywire from the FAA and figure it out by just understanding how things work or researching or calling somebody who's done it before, et cetera, you know, and I'm going to have to be able to figure that out. Um, so that there were a lot of things like that when it came to commercial aviation that I, I don't feel were emphasized um, or valued very much within um military aviation. So some of the things that would make you a good, good, uh, civilian pilot, um, were not super valued and nobody really cared in military, um, uh, pilot training. So did that change then? So when, when you got to the B course, did that change? Uh, no, the, the, the B course is pretty structured as well. Um, you learn the airplane and, and to be quite honest with you, there has to be a level of structure because, you know, you're dealing with a $56 million airplane that you've never flown before. So there has to be a level of uh, like a safety net, if you will, of decisions that are, you know, someone can show you, okay, this is how we do it. And this is how we do it to be able to keep you safe. And, oh, by the way, we've invested a lot of money in, all these assets that are sitting out on the ramp and we don't want to lose any. So we'll try to get you good enough uh, to be able to fly and to be able to execute, but we don't really want to take losses um, so that you have the potential of being better. Um, <laughs> and, and that sort of describes the way that, you know, the mil military air force works. Uh, now there's there are certain enclaves where that isn't, 
you know, emphasized as much. And there are certain uh, areas in the Air Force where they will let you, you know, get into a lot of trouble on your own, or they'll let you be able to experience and learn a ton. Um, those opportunities are really kind of far and few between, but they're, they're definitely out there. Um, and we've taken a few of those opportunities and I've honestly asked myself like, man, I can't believe I'm actually doing this right now. Give us, give no us an rules against this. Can you give us an um, example? Well, we did, uh, <laughs> uh, not too long ago, we did, uh, aerial gunnery, uh, with the air to air gun. So shooting the air to air gun. And, um, when you, we did the setup and, um, there's a QF 16. So, um, F-16 that's been reclaimed, I guess, uh, if you will, um, that can either be unmanned or manned and they're painted orange. Uh, Anyways, uh, they have a pod on the wing and the pod has a 2000 foot cable attached to it. And there's a little banner on there and he flies in a circle and you shoot the gun at him or at the banner. Uh, and, you do that at, you know, 400 knots or so in a turn. So you have to pull a decent amount of lead to be able to do that or cut across the circle or however you're going to square it. And, uh, this, so this F 16 is in your HUD as you're pulling the trigger with, you know, rounds coming out of your jet air to air. And you do this as your wingman or as your flight lead, uh, well, they'll, they'll kind of, they'll, they'll do the same thing and then they'll, they'll come off high and you go back in. And so there's this whole moving chainsaw, so to speak of your, um, your flight lead or your wingman, um, going back and forth and you're taking shots at this little red tag, essentially on the back of this 2000 foot cable that's being drugged by an F-16 with somebody flying it, you know, uh, a contractor who's flying it. Very brave uh, soul for sure, because um, you have all these new wingmen that are, you know, it's so. It, anyways, um, it stuff like that. Wow, that's that's. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong, um, but that was that was a uh, well, yeah. One of those things were like, well, that's a. It, it was great, tra- great, great training and great experience uh, overall. Um, but definitely at first glance, you're used to more of a tight, tightly controlled environment. And then that's kind of like, okay, man, it's all, all up to you. Just don't screw this up, you know? <laughs> so, so, so that was pretty good, I guess. But so, so what about then moving from backseat to front seat? Were there things that you thought you knew about operating the airplane, um, well, maybe you would sort of, and I think we touched on this last time when we when we talked about, you know, you're sitting in the back and you're thinking, well, maybe I'd do things differently if I were in the front. Were, were there things that you ended up doing in the front where you thought, actually, now it makes sense that they were doing things that way or anything that surprised you that, that we were not expecting? Um, I, I tell you what, going in the front seat, I think I have a lot better uh, systems knowledge of the jet than I did when I was in the back seat. Um, and a lot of that stems from interacting with uh, systems on a much more intimate basis, I think, and troubleshooting. Because a lot of the jets, it, you know, as soon as you start them up, sometimes you have problems, and you have to work work through those problems and see what's wrong, and talk to the, you know, 
talk to the techs about it and figure out why your generator keeps falling offline or while, you know, the radar isn't working quite right or there's flight control codes that you're trying to fix or see or trying to clean up. Um, And I think you develop a little bit more of a corporate knowledge that isn't necessarily in a manual that you can read about on your, um, you know, on your time off. So interacting with that um, all the time, I think gives you a lot better uh, systems knowledge to when you're, when you start doing emergencies, then you can, um, you kind of know exactly what's going on. You kind of know exactly what to do and um, all, all that sort of stuff, which it wasn't, it wasn't that we had a bad knowledge of that in the backseat. It's just that I don't think that we had a very high level, like a very intimate knowledge, or at least I didn't. I'm sure there's wizards that were out there that did um, and wizards that were a lot better than I was. Um, but yeah, that, that would be kind of one example of it. Um, additionally, obviously, when you fight BFM, uh, you know, the front seat, it's, it's, it's extremely, extremely difficult to teach uh, BFM or any type of maneuvering from the backseat. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's just without feeling and knowing what the front seat is, um, you know, what he's seeing, how he's maneuvering the jet, when he's unloading, when he's loading up the jet, when he's actually, um, what cycle of uh, decisions that he's using um, or what decision matrix that he's using vis-a-vis the bandit. It's really tough to, uh, know that real time in the back seat uh, for sure. So um, it, that was kind of an example of things that were things that were different, and some some in a good way, you know. And I also think it kind of goes vice versa as well for close air support. Like pilots don't, I don't think have the level of understanding or detail that wizos can have when you do close air support uh, based on the. I don't want to call them secondary tasks, but, you know, peripheral tasks to cast where it comes to putting the airplane in the right spot, making sure you don't hit anybody else, making sure that, you know, the RPA in the stack isn't going to go through your block or, you know, worrying about whether your next tanker plan or, you know, whatever, or borders. Um, The wizard can be very, very immersed into the uh, close air support scenario where he knows exactly where each person is on the ground, how they're moving, where they're moving to, what they're doing and collecting all this data and focusing solely on that. Um, so the pilots really don't have that level of um, detail. Um, and so it's kind of vice versa when it comes to BFM, I feel like. Um, but and so, yeah, that's uh, hopefully that answers your question. What? Is it like then flying BFM in, in the aeroplane? There's, I know from talking to you know, light grade guys, they talk about the tickle on the wings and there's the mouse and then there's the elephant stamping on the wings that sort of give an indication as to where you are against the stool. Um, is that true for Strike Eagle? Are there little telltale signs that you feel in the air, airframe or you feel through the stick? Um, and, and just to complicate the question unnecessarily, can you talk a little bit about what those sort of decision-making matrices matrices are that you might be using when you bfm are you talking about things like ooda loop or are you talking about something different uh yeah we could uh talk about that <laughs> i'm happy to talk about that as long as you want uh but the 
so one thing to know about the Strike Eagle is that it never met a knot it couldn't lose, right? Um, so it's gonna it runs out of energy like you read about, and you don't really have a long opportunity to um, do sustained BFM with someone other than a Strike Eagle. Usually, if you fight, you know, go out there, you fight against F twenty twos or whatever. You know, it's the fight's probably going to be over faster than it would be if you were fighting a, a, a strike eagle um, because you, you can't sustain energy and you have to maximize the amount of time that you're in a weapons engagement zone um, and exploit that. And if you don't exploit those opportunities quickly enough, you're pretty much, you're dead. Um, so for the strike eagle, really, truly fighting the strike eagle well is about um, being able to uh, maximize the opportunity that you're in a weapons engagement zone by uh, taking every opportunity that you have while you have it um, and not waiting for something uh, better or delaying or not being fast with HOTAS. Um, so where you make your money at really in strike eagle, in my opinion, and BFM is being ultra fast when it comes to, um, you know, getting a lock or getting uh, using your helmet or, um, you know, with the AIM-9X or whatever, just using things as fast as you possibly can and knowing where your envelope is and knowing when, you know, he's about to min-range your missile or um, you, you're you outranged from a gunshot or you're, you know, you need to go back to a, call an MRM or an AMRAM uh, and then be able to take a shot and knowing exactly where you're at in that um and time and space um, is really where you make your money in the Strike Eagle, in my opinion, because you don't have a lot of opportunity to uh, saddle up behind somebody like you would if you were in an F-22, you know. Um, so from the Strike Eagle perspective, the, it's, it's actually kind of funny because when I first started in the Strike, um, I was all about, you know, pulling as many Gs as that jet would pull and being as aggressive as I possibly can. And the, uh, the, the older that I've gotten, I, I just figure out that um, with the strike heel, it's, it's a lot more about finesse when it comes to maneuvering the airplane. And you the old adage of um, that you trade nose position for uh, with energy wisely is, is 100% uh, true in the strike eagle. Um, if you're not going to cash it in, uh, you, you just can't keep cashing it in all the time because you, you just don't have much to cash in. Um, so you have to be extremely uh, deliberate and uh, saving as much energy as you possibly can uh, and then making your moves uh, when you have the bot, uh, best possibility of success uh, and then making sure that you succeed there. It's, it's sort of like um, sort of like fighting asymmetric warfare, if you would, you know, uh, if you're the uh, you're the you're the underdog in BFM most of the time. Um, so you got to find a way to be as asymmetric as you possibly can. Um, so that's, uh, that, that's that. And, and usually that doesn't involve pulling a ton of G's because you're just going to, you're, you're going to lose energy, you know, and then you're going to be shit out of luck, uh, overall that there is a big difference though, uh, even within the strike eagle of the, uh, two twenty motor jets. Uh, so the small motor jets and the 229s, um, as far as what you can and can't do with the 220s, you just have to be, I mean, you have to be careful about what, how you're going to handle your energy situation, especially against, um, you know, better opponents than you. And 
The strike heal obviously does a lot of multi-role stuff. So when you actually, uh, more of a realistic scenario, when you may find yourself in BFM, you could be carrying bombs, you could be carrying wing tanks, etc. So you have to figure out what your jettison plan is. And if you're going to give up the whole entire mission by punching off your bombs, um, or you're going to try to find a way not to engage in a turning fight with somebody else. You know, how can I stiff arm somebody to be able to do that? Uh, all of that tactical decision-making is a lot different than somebody who's, you know, like an F-22 that's internally carrying his ordinance and he's, you know, primarily in an air-to-air role. Um, they, you know, so it, anyways, hope, hope, hopefully that answers a little, a little bit of the question, but I, I can talk a little bit more if you want about the, the actual, the feel and the mouses and the elephants and stuff. Yeah, if you want. <laughs> yeah. Talk about that, and then and then I, and I'd, I'd like to go back to um to the the helmet mounted site as well. But um yes, yeah. That, so that could be the my uh, question. the the jet definitely talks to you. Um, it, you know, you can you can feel it uh, after a while. As a matter of fact, you can actually, if you're fighting another strike eagle, you can look across the circle and you can tell what energy state he's at based on where his nose is at and where his stab position is at. So his horizontal uh, stabilizer. Because uh, it's a flying stab that moves, you know, all the way. You can tell if he's really dug in, uh, and his nose isn't moving. That he's at a really low energy state uh, based on his nose rate and where his flight controls are. Um, and those are things that are pretty easy to pick out if you uh, fly the jet a lot and you kind of know what it looks like and know exactly what to look for. the The gun is canted a little bit up, so if someone is gunning you, um, it can still look to the layperson like he's not. He doesn't have his gun exactly, you know, where you would think it would be within lead, um, but he still may be shooting at you in that case. And then uh, same thing goes with weapons engagement zones as far as the um, uh, the 9X and uh, AMRAM and stuff is that it, it opens up a, a very wide range of places where you can get shot from if you're defensive. Uh, so you're pretty much always in a WES, uh, you know, if he's behind you uh, for the most part. But um, as far as the actual feel of the jet, the jet has, you know, it goes light to moderate to what we call the deep end of the moderate buffet. And the deep end of the moderate buffet is usually once you're um, you're not performing the jet at all and uh, everything that you're doing is, is, is losing energy at a rate that um, is... Uh, is getting you nowhere, essentially. You know, just essentially falling out of the sky at, at that case. And... and may or may not be just relying on whatever thrust that you have in the back end to keep your nose, you know, where it's at. Um, the jet it also will depart. So you can depart the jet from controlled flight. Um, unlike um, some other jets out there that'll kind of, that have a lot of nanny controls that keep you, you know, from stalling in any sort of weird flight control spot. Um, but but this one you can you can put the flight controls where you want it to, uh, and that could work out for better or for worse. Sometimes you could do some really cool you know <laughs> really cool jinx. Uh, other times you can depart the jet. Um, and uh, but overall it's it's a uh, it's actually a very very easy airplane to fly, and um, I think even slower speed it's a pretty easy airplane to fly, and it's super responsive. Um, there's a couple of regimes where you don't really want to get into with it and especially if you're fighting it, it all depends on the bandit you know if you're if you're fighting an f-22 there's certain airspeed regimes where you just you don't want to be at you're going to die <laughs> like he's 
he's going to be able to turn so much faster than you. Um, so you need to keep, you know, whether it's keeping your knots up to a certain point or whatever. Um, and, uh, but, but there's no, uh, angle of attack limits, you know, in the stick, um, like some other airplanes have. So you can slam that sucker back and get as much as you want to out of it, uh, for better, or for worse. Um, but yeah, the jet, the jet eventually talks to you within the buffet. Some, some jets are a little bit different depending on, uh, it's kind of a long story, but it, it depends on how recent the ailerons were changed out and the bushings and the ailerons. And the, the, there's a couple other like little nuanced items. Um, but some of the jets feel a little bit different as far as uh, Buffett and what, uh, what Mach number that you're pulling versus what Buffett that you're getting out and how you're accelerating. Um, and what um, where you're at vertically, I guess, within the circle, whether your nose is down or your nose is pointed back up, you know, how much you're going to get out of it and what where you're close to your corner velocity or if you're not or your corner velocity with, you know, X given assumptions behind it. Um, the jet will no doubt talk to you and you can get to a light buffet and know that you're max performing the airplane as much as it possibly can. Um, and then once you're in the deep end of the moderate buffet, generally you're not performing the airplane at all. And you need to consciously, um, ease on the stick. Um, it's a pretty common mistake that if you see somebody who's just at the edge of your weapons engagement zone, you want to do everything you can to pull him into your weapons engagement zone, you know, by pulling back on the stick. Uh, and in that case, in this jet, Oftentimes what that does is it pushes you into this deep end of the moderate buffet and then you get zero performance and zero nose rate out of the jet. Um, and then you've actually done, done yourself a lot worse by trying to be greedy with that initial shot. Um, so, so that's pretty much, uh, yeah. So does that, um, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, straying a little bit out of my lane here. I mean, I do lots of flight sims and, and stuff like that, but you've got this rate versus radius argument or you, you could be the rate, a rate fighter or a radius fighter would that suggest that you are more of a radius fighter then so it's more about sort of keeping the turn circle managing the size of the turn circle rather than trying to get it around it really really quickly um i would so for for myself i would actually take a completely different stance on all of that and say that um if you're in the strike eagle and you're trying for a rate or versus radius uh, fight initially, um, you're probably going to die soon. And, uh, and, and the reason is, is because um, it, it's kind of hard to explain, but if we had, if all we had was a nine mic on the jet, they're a, um, one of the uh, old lower performing um, IR missiles and the gun, it would be much more of a, um, uh, more important to a game plan of whether you're going to go rate or radius, depending on what fighter that you're fighting against and whether he's better at rate or radius versus you. And depending on what his EM diagram looks like realistically now, when it comes to your nine uh, X and aim one twenty, um, you're looking to try to exploit the WES for as long as possible. And sometimes what that doesn't mean is uh, getting on his turn circle um, because the fact of the matter is that every turn circle out there 
is probably a better performing turn circle than the strike eagle is, you know, and your chances of entering his turn circle and staying on a turn circle from an opponent, whether it's a J10 or it's an F22 or it's a, you know, Hornet or whatever, uh, is pretty, pretty low, uh, to be quite honest with you. So what you really are trying to do is you, you really want to try to exploit uh, the maximum amount of time that you can remain in that WES. And doing that sometimes um, means that you need to put your jet into a different spot rather than uh, think about a rate versus radius um, argument. Because in order to get into that WES, you might need to... <sighs> You might need to, you know, steal vertical energy or you might need to say that, hey, well, right now I'm going to do a rate argument because I can maximize my time in a WES versus a rate. But depending on the shape of his turn circle, you know, maybe a radius argument is going to be uh, is going to be different or the way to go. Or I need to shape uh, how I'm thinking about this opponent much differently um, to be able to maximize the opportunity into a WES uh, overall. So. Um, kind of the goal of, uh, I would say, like BFM exercises and uh, going out there to, you know, bet some beers or, you know, bragging rights at the bar is always getting into a guns wes. Um, but with the strike eagle vis-a-vis a, you know, Su-30 or Su-35, like if you're trying to get into a guns wes, which would be great, you're also, you're giving up so much to be able to do that, that your return on investment is probably pretty low. And um, we have this thing called the control zone. Uh, and the control zone is a extremely fluid, very dynamic, can't quite be defined um, in numbers by a book um, because it's entirely based on what opponent that you're facing and then what weapon that you're using and how you're able to control the opponent or pressure the opponent, depending on which side of the zone that you're at. Uh, and that, and that changes completely, you know, overall. Um, so the old traditional traditionalist argument would be that, um, you go out there and do exercises and it, it mirrors a lot more of your nine mic, um, or your older IR, you know, pictures, um, to where now you're starting to, you really need to focus on a turn circle entry. You need to focus on, you know, some other stuff. And, uh, but that it's a little skewed when it comes to the strike Eagle, because, uh, based on the term performance, where you're going to be at and what opportunities that you have, uh, and how long you can exploit those opportunities. Obviously the, um, the fulcrum flanker threat, um, for, for a long time. I know this because, you know, visiting squadrons you know, 15 years ago, hearing them talk about it in briefs, you know, you've got the off, high off site uh, capability that the um, you know the threat systems have. You've now got that. You've mentioned the helmet and M9X a few times. If if everything were equal, then presumably going into that sort of um, following pursuing the um, philosophy you've addressed in terms of you know, the wes, you know, keeping them in the wes for as long as possible is the most important thing. Then presumably there would be parity, but actually. I guess you're bargaining then that your combination of high off boresight um, missile and and helmet are better than his. Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a great point, and um, I think that most of our going out the door assumptions are that you know, our 
tech is better than their tech right now, or it should be. Whether that's the actual case or not, I think it's, who knows. Uh, and I think it's worth exploring the envelope of saying that. Well, what if he does have a, you know, a crazy off-boresight capability that's way better than we think it is? Um, where is that going to put me in, uh, in BFM? You know, and it's really getting to the point now where essentially anywhere you're at, um, if you start, if you both start out equal, I mean, you're both, you know, held hostage by each other, if you would. Um, so that turning fight is a lot different. So how, how am I going to, you know, where are the edges of his, you know, weapons employment zone? You know, what if he could, you know, what if he could look back behind his tails, you know, as you're, you know, and just shoot anything that he sees, you know, with an ultra maneuverable missile. Um, I think it's getting to the point now where uh, technology is evolving, um, you know, to, to maybe be able to do that or, or, um, you know, the, the other thing is that, well, what if his, uh, what if his flare combination or his countermeasures or wh- whatever it is, what if they're really, really good? Uh, and he's, you know, like our aim nine X or, or whatever is just not, not going to work. What are you going to do at that point? And, um, a lot of the, you know, argument would say, well, that's why we go to a guns West because, you know, the gun is the only, um, you know, you're, you're not really going to defeat the gun with uh, countermeasures, you know, you're going to have to defeat it with maneuvers. So, I don't know. I, I, and that's a pretty compelling reason to, to try to get to a, a guns was, or just try to avoid the fight altogether and um, say, Hey, is it worth it to burn a shit ton of gas in a turning engagement to try to get my, you know, underperforming fighter into a guns was with the Su 30, you know, given our fuel states or giving our, you know, weapon states or giving, you know, whatever support assets are around or, you know, do, you, do you really do you really have a choice um, staying on? I, mean, I I sort of assume that if you get to emerge with one of those guys, even if you accelerate away, he's probably going to be able to turn around and shoot you. Uh, you know, if if it's, it might not be an IR missile, but it might be uh, one of his radar missiles. Uh, do you, I mean, are you not committed once you get to the if you if you come up against a Su thirty five, are you not just committed to fighting it? Is there is there a viable way of getting away from that thing? Um, so the yeah we we talk about this at the bar probably you know every Friday because <laughs> uh, I mean that's that's a perfectly valid and, and logical argument. Um, the uh, the other portion of that argument would be like okay how'd you get there and did you shoot everything on your way to the merge? <laughs> you know did you like? Because I'd rather shoot a flanker that's in front of me you know, on my radar than I would who, you know, trying to look behind me, um, betting, you know, that this aim nine X who, Oh, by the way, has a, uh, is Oh, by one in combat, you know, uh, you know, whether this thing is actually going to work or not, and he doesn't have the right flare combination. Uh, and I'm just going to burn a shit ton of gas turning around in circles with him, waiting for hopefully my wingman who, you know, assuming that he didn't get shot down or assuming that, you know, I have somebody who's close by who has the gas and the weapons to be able to make a difference. Um, you know, assuming that he's going to be able to take a shot on this two V one sort of scenario. Um, so I, I would say that it, my decision calculus would be, 
uh, how do I <laughs> how do I terminate this threat at range if I can within the confines of the ROE, and then how do I avoid uh, this threat, and, or how do I uh, convert on him without him being aware that I'm there, or how do I how do I hide? Um, you know, for Strike Eagles, we do a lot of low levels, and so the obvious answer there would be you know try to get in the mud as much as possible. And, uh, you know, maybe give his, his radar some trouble, uh, looking into the ground or, um, try to get, uh, you know, lost, um, in an undercast layer or, you know, multiple other venues of, of, uh, I don't want to call it really camouflage, but just, uh, you know, give him as much difficulty as he possibly can, uh, to be able to see where I'm at and then start to lose his essay. And then if I can maintain essay on him maybe I'll try to get to the most advantageous uh, spot that we um, spot that we possibly can, which is actually where uh, when we do, when we talk about perch BFM uh, is where, from my understanding, perch BFM uh, evolved from was, uh, you know, trying to get into a position of advantage um, as fast as possible without using as much gas um, and then being able to exploit that opportunity once it was available. Uh, Cause eventually the jig will be up. Eventually he'll see you and he'll break into you and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I would try to get as much advantage as possible rather than doing a high aspect merge, you know, where he, you know, yeah, passes within. Cause there, there's no training rules when it comes to, you know, the enemy and stuff. And he's not going to, he's going to get as close to you as he possibly can without hitting you, you know, and then you're doing the same thing. So you guys could even trade paint or anything, you know, any, any sort of other stuff. Um, but yeah, so I, in that case, um, I would say that, okay, what is the context in which I'm going to the merge? What, what is the context in which I can get an advantageous, uh, you know, within visual range engagement with this guy? Uh, and then I would explore all of those options. And I think that uh, even spreading your wingman out to a you know crazy geometry, uh, if you're 2v1, which is what we normally do in ACM, uh, is to be able to get at least get somebody to get that, get in there with an, um, with an advantage. If I have to turn around and run while my wingman goes in, you know, if he's focused on me as the bright, shiny object, and my wingman can get in there, then, you know, we'll try something like that. Um, which is kind of what ACM is structured for, uh, when you do two V one and you move from a, uh, beyond visual range environment to a within visual range environment. On that note, uh, do you, um, I suppose when you use something like AMRAM, there's always the danger that it could transfer lock onto something other than what you want it to shoot down, especially when it goes active, does its own thing. That's a possibility, I suppose. Um, do you, with, with IR missiles, um, work with similar assumptions then that, uh, you know, if, if you, as in, you know, the engaged fighter are, are sort of shooting uh, at the bad guy and he's right behind the good guy, um, you know, when you train, do you consider the possibility that the missile might be locked onto the person you're trying to protect rather than the person you're trying to, to down? Oh, absolutely. And, uh <laughs> Uh, you know, that never happens in training ever. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of uh, shot deconfliction is normally what we call it. Uh, and you have to do it 
because um, the, the further you're taking the shot, right, the longer the missile is traveling. So technically, the more shot deconfliction space that you need. So if somebody is in a whirling dervish, you know, and super tight and you're t- trying to take a shot from pretty far away, um, who, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> um, so and in some cases, you know, it. If the guy, uh, if, if, if your wingman is extremely defensive and it's only a matter of seconds before he dies, uh, then sometimes you're willing to take that risk um, to say that, hey, um, you know, he's going to die one way or the other. I got to try to shoot in there and see what happens. But um, hopefully if, if the fight has progressed to that point, um, then hopefully you're, you start to close the range Um as much as you can uh, to be able to make sure that, you know, you can back up your wingman to the maximum extent uh, that you can uh, overall. And then he'll try to preserve the range to be able to make that happen without compromising, um, you know, or, or being within a WES for, for very long because it sort of all presupposes that we're strictly using a uh, within visual range like ID or ROE criteria and a um, uh, uh, within visual range missiles. But if he's shooting, if a flanker is shooting at range, um, then you know all that, all, all those things kind of go out the out the window. But but yeah, to to answer your question, yeah, shot affliction is a uh, is definitely a huge thing. It's, it's, it's just like you're doing casts and, um, you're danger close, you know? Um, so there, there's a time and a place where you'd want to, uh, up your wrist to be able to preserve your wingman's life. Um, so hopefully the guys at Raytheon can figure, have some magic up their sleeve when it comes to that. Who knows? <laughs> so. Just t- tying then what you talked about, right at the beginning in regards to decision making you know pilot and command stuff with the feel of the airplane the fact you've got game plans there's geometry there's assessing what he's doing what you're doing what your wingman's doing is there a point um at which or or rather at what point does some of this stuff become happen at an unconscious level um you know there's this um, expression isn't there cognitive saturation or, or helmet fire where it all gets too much there's too much to process too much to do you know situation awareness goes out of the window do you over time start to find that you're processing some of these decisions you're making these assessments you're formulating your next move without really being conscious that you're doing it um yeah i i i think that that's that's true i think one of the struggles that um, people have, or I don't even know if I would call it a struggle, maybe a evolution of learning is that they usually your, your best, um, your best fighter pilots and your best tacticians are people that can prioritize um, all the important things that they need to focus on. And, um, everything else goes into this subconscious. It doesn't really matter. I'm not really going to give it a lot of thought or priority. Um, as far as what, what's happening, uh, tactically speaking, I think you do develop sort of a tacit knowledge for 
understanding how things are going to go and what the enemy is going to do. Um, all that being said, I'm trying to think about the best way to describe this, but we can do a lot better job of that. I think in the uh, fighter community, because um, the the way that the way that scenarios go right now, and you can even look at red flag, you can look at um, uh, your standard one each ops training sortie. Is that they are very red air is generally very scripted and follows a very uh, a they follow a very prescribed structure of how they're going to operate and we and what what our assumptions are with those so very very rarely do you have any type of cognitive dissonance that doesn't happen um, or that something you don't expect happens with red air and uh, what that does is it builds this decision um, propensity to assume well yeah it builds it, it just builds a lot of assumptions that you have subconsciously about what you think red air is going to do and what you think the enemy is going to do and how you're going to you know how you're going to prosecute an attack if you go to real life, you know, that may not always be the case. And I feel like we've learned these lessons over and over and over again in combat of that, you know, you, you really don't know what the enemy is going to do. And you really don't know that maybe he's been studying you forever and he knows exactly what you're going to do. And he's already come up with something completely different. Um, and he just hasn't told you about it yet, you know, Mm. or, uh, so your ability to deal with, um, the changing environment, um, I think is at a loss, at least in the fighter community. It's not, it's not totally lost, but it is not as good as it can be. So, and that goes back to this whole structured environment of expecting some sort of structure, which we talked about in the whole UPT conversation and back up through the B course, et cetera, is that you're expecting a very, very, very structured, um, okay, this is how they're going to act. This is how I'm going to act. This is what the scenario is. This is how we're reading the script, et cetera. And, you know, uh, normally fighter pilots would pride themselves on not following a script or not following any of this sort of stuff. But that's exactly what's happening is that it's very scripted. And it's rationalized through something that we call desire learning objectives, which um, say that, hey, well, we really want him to learn you know, or her to learn how to uh, run the radar appropriately in this scenario, or we really want them to understand how to do an intercept uh, without porking it away, or we really want them to be able to understand that geometry is very important here, you know, or it may not be as important here, but it is important here for this. And those are all valid things, but once that sort of just takes over, uh, then people start to build that that tacit level of uh, uh, of assumptions when it comes to, um, I don't even have to think about how I need to prosecute this scenario. I already know, I know what's going to happen. So I know I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it. Um, so then you can get very good at all these training scenarios. And then when you get to combat, you die, uh, which is pretty much exactly what we saw in, um, especially in Vietnam when it came to using Korean war tactics uh, in 
with F4s against MiG-17s and MiG-21s, and it didn't really pan out that well. You know, at the beginning, they had to completely change uh, their tactics uh, overall, and that and that came from that same sort of process um, that we were just talking about. So, so to go way, 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 way back here to your question, um, that you know, do you have this sort of subconscious level of movements that you're going to do? The answer is yes. Some, some of those are bad. Some of those are good, but you always have to come back to a debrief and then evaluate, okay, um, could we have been seriously exploited in this situation? Was this really the best decision to do? Um, if we thought about, you know, if we talked to Red Air, hey, did you have the opportunity to do this? Or did you have the opportunity to, um, you know, maybe kill our two ship here or there? Um, and then you go back to what assumptions that you had as far as uh, your two ship or four ship goes um, and say, hey, we didn't bring that into our planning. We didn't talk about it during our brief. We didn't talk about a what if scenario uh, based on, uh, you know, maybe a most dangerous course of action from Red Air, maybe most likely course of action from Red Air. Uh, maybe we need to reevaluate those, how we think about them. Um, and then you would go back, you would take that hopefully to the next brief bring that back in and learn that, you know, overall. So, um, so, so yeah, there, there are some cases, some cases are good. Some cases are bad. One thing that certainly back in the seventies and eighties, the, the aggressors and the, the red Eagles, um, were doing is that they were doing those canned scenarios, but then when somebody had progressed through the sort of layered training and they, they'd achieved those desired, desired learning outcomes that you mentioned, the cuffs then came off and it was then just, an American flying a MiG or an F five against an American flying an F fifteen or an F sixteen, whatever it was, and there were, you know, the the red air piece kind of went out the window and it was just a case of I'm gonna thrash you. Uh, or if not I'm gonna thrash you, I'm gonna give you some more desired desired learning outcomes that maybe you, you weren't aware of or, or weren't thinking about. Is that not the case then nowadays? If you go up against uh, some some red air guys, can you not just give them the brief that actually cuffs come off? Surprise me. Yeah, we're, uh, we can do that. Um, and we are supposed to do it within what we call CT or continuation training, uh, where it's not somebody's, um, you know, not somebody's upgrade or, or, or whatnot. Um, pardon me for just a second. Um, yeah, we, we definitely can do those, but, the some of the pretense in which, uh, it's all kind of context-based um, and we can probably talk a little bit more offline about this, but the uh, uh, there's certain presuppositions in the way that we fight and the way that scenarios are going to uh, happen. Uh, and I'm trying to think of a better way to describe this. Um, I guess, uh, I guess red flag is a pretty good example of it. Um, Red flag, you have kind of like the red forces versus the blue forces, and the red forces are here, the blue forces are there. Uh, here's the objectives, here's the targets. Okay, um, you know, let's, you know, all converge and then we'll fight this big war and reenact Desert Storm and all this stuff. Um, when, if you were to truly say the cuffs are off, then it would really just be, okay, this is the objective. Um, that's it. Like, you can, you guys can literally, you know, just defend it however you want to, which would open up Pandora's box to all sorts of assumptions that you never thought of, whether it was a, you know, you know, what if they did a preemptive 
you know, attack on our base? Or what if they came up with, you know, I don't know, put up a fleet of a million balloons with all C4, you you know, like there's this whole like Pandora's box of like, uh, of possibilities and outcomes that can happen. Um, and, and then the other thing is that, um, well, what if, um, you had one of those scenarios, but all of your Intel assessments were completely wrong and your, uh, what you thought their capabilities were, uh, was that they were just different. Like your, their, what we thought their missile ranges were, uh, they were, you know, oops, they're 30% better, you know, and now you're, you're on day one or day two and you're taking, you know, 70%, 80% losses. Okay. What do you do then? And what do you do on day two when you have, you know, uh, only 20% of the fleet that you started with, you know, how are you going to, uh, solve that problem? Those are the kind of scenarios that I think, um, and how to do that actively when it, while it's happening, all that sort of stuff is where, when we say the cuffs come off, um, now we start putting people into a, uh, uncomfortable decision matrix where, um, there's more unknowns. There's not, uh, the decisions are not very clear. It's not just, um, you know, maybe, maybe the ROE is, is not clear at all. And it's not just like, okay, those guys over there past the line are all enemy. What if it's, you know, Actually, seventy percent of them are civilians, uh, but they all fly the same exact airplane. Or, uh, you know, fifty percent of them are from country X, and fifty percent are from country Y. Don't shoot the guys from country X, even though they fly the same exact planes. And the only way to tell the difference is a roundel on the, you know, side of the airplane. So, you know, th- that's truly when, it, when the enemy starts to complicate our decision making, and they say, "Hey, the 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 cuffs truly come off." Um, then it's not just a, um, I'm going to be as good as I can at what I've been training for and the manner in which I've been training for, you know, for the past you know 20 years or so. Um, that, that's what I would kind of imagine from a more of a tactical sense though, that you're talking about, about the red Eagles and the, you know, cuffs coming off and just being, you know, uh, mano a mano out there and stuff that that can certainly happen um and it and it does and, and it's a lot of fun you know we come back and we debrief it um but it doesn't it doesn't happen enough uh i would say you know um it doesn't happen to the point where you know uh we'd like it to bringing the conversation back then stinger to, to the strike eagle um Obviously, the objective of this conversation is not to try and uh, uh, get any secrets uh, out of you or anything like that. But I'd be curious to know what you can say about the ESA radar um, in the airplane, and um, you know, not not parametrics, not not numbers, but um, you know, it's uh, is it is it a game changer? You know, does it um, do a much much better job in the air to air environment or the air to ground environment? Um, you know, what what in your view is is its value? Um. So as of right now, uh, the ACE radar and the Strike Eagle is great. I mean, it's a great radar. Uh, and I say this as a skeptic of, uh, you know, current technology. Um, I think the, the APG-82 is a great, great radar. Uh, game changer, I don't know. I don't know if I use the term game changer because um, you would imply that you're actually – you know, somehow changing the way the enemy thinks about everything else, which I, I don't know if I buy that or not, but, um, but it is a very, very good radar. Um, but 
it still is, you know, not the end all be all of um, targeting systems. And it's still every technology that comes out, every, um, you know, whether it's stealth or whether it's, you know, great ACE radars, whether it's whatever, um, everything will eventually have its uh, vulnerabilities uh, understood. Um, and then it'll eventually be exploited. So it's really a matter of time when you have this evolution um, overall of where, you know, threat uh, threats will counter, you know, things and, and stuff. And um, I think that the time with the ASA radar, the APG-82 is probably limited if it doesn't keep evolving fast. Um, if we don't keep evolving the technology that's in there uh, right now, which I would try to, I would try to push it. it, it it's not a 40 or 50 year radar. Um, you know, it is great and it is awesome and it does some really great, cool stuff. Um, but eventually at, at the rate that technology is um, increasing at the way that, you know, we're something like memory, you know, if you think about processing power and memory, what the exponential curve is on that, you know, from just 20 years ago, um, I think we're going to, we're going to see a little bit more of that when it comes to uh, radars and then what, you know, electronic attack looks like and then what, um, how it can be exploited or jammed or, you know, whatever. Um, And I think that over the period of the next, you know, 15, 20 years that we'll see, um, the APG-82 will probably look like one of the mech scan radars uh, do right yeah. now. Um, so, can, so can yeah, you... to answer your question, it's great, and it's awesome, and it's, I mean, I think the Strikeel right now has the best radar in the fighter fleet. Um, so, I, I saw a marketing that. video that, that showed it, it being used in air-to-ground and air-to-air, not at the same time, because that would be impossible, but in such short amounts of time it's sort of a time sharing mechanism so you could be running a, a mapping routine or something and you know sort of keeping an eye out for for bad guys in front of you at the same time is that true can can it do that uh yeah it's uh it, it's a pretty solid capable system what, what is the what is the contract then between you and the the wizzo with regards to who's doing what with any of the aircraft systems at any time. I mean, if you're, um, you know, if, if you take an intercept as an example, does it, is it still the case that the WIZO runs the intercept until a certain mileage from, from the, the target and then you take over or um, how does that work? Uh, so normally the pilot runs most of the, well, it, it does depend on what contracts you, you set up. Um, but most of the time I would say that the pilot runs the air to air piece of the, intercept and with the radar and then uh the wizzo will primarily take over air to ground uh, uh targeting or things whatever whether he's using you know the sniper pod air to ground or if he's using the um uh, radar to map something air to ground or you know what whatnot um but primarily uh most of the contracts work to where um, the wizard will keep overall SA of the situation. The wizard uh, typically wears what they call kind of like the defensive hat, uh, if you will, of the jet to make sure that there's not a threat that you're not, um, that maybe you don't see or you're not focusing on. And then he'll keep, uh, he or she will keep you safe from, um, you know, stooging into a, 
um, you know, a missile was of, uh, you know, any threat out there. The same thing goes for surface to air missiles. And then, um, you know, the whistle will, but it's primarily as far as targeting goes, focused on air to ground stuff. Uh, and then the pilot is generally focused a little bit more on air to air stuff. Uh, and, and that can swap and that can, you know, be different depending on what exactly what it is that you're doing or how many threats you're focusing on, or, you know, maybe he's monitoring the guys to the East, you're monitoring the guys to the West, you know, it, there's a whole different, there's a whole menu of options that you can, uh, and uh, contracts that you can kind of come to, um, from both sides, I guess. So if, if you think about the, the strike Eagle in its, in its sort of original incarnation, incarnation with the APG 70 and, you know, 1990, 1991 timeframe going out to patch mapping using the synthetic, synthetic aperture radar to uh, build a picture of a target and then dropping CBU on it or, or unguided bombs. Are you still doing similar sorts of things in, the, in an air to ground capacity? You, you talked um, earlier about using low level as a way of um, extending out of a fight and um, causing some problems for your opponent um, in terms of making him look down into the, the ground clutter. Um, is that still that traditional patch map, low level ingress, pop up, drop an unguided bomb? Is that still something you practice or do? So. To answer your question, yes, uh, there is a kind of a niche part of our training that we do uh, where we um, where we practice and maintain some skill sets when it comes to unguided deliveries. Um, obviously, that's not really the preferred way to um, to do that. Um, generally speaking, if you have a target and your um, your ability to uh, drop a bomb exactly on that target um, starts to expand. So uh, a, an unguided bomb, you know, you may hit, you know, 5, 10, 20 meters away from the target, depending on a bunch of different factors because you're dropping the bomb. No, no matter what the jet is saying from an auto-computed delivery, um, you know, there's all kinds of other variables and factors at work. Um, speed in which you're dropping the bomb, uh, exactly where your hand is on the stick. You know, if you're dropping a bomb at four or 500 knots, then, you know, even the slightest pressure on the stick could have a, um, you know, an effect on a bomb that falls for a while uh, to where it could be, you know, 10, 20 meters, 30 meters away, whatever it is. Um, so if you're trying to destroy a target, sometimes that if, if you, if you sort of take the average of that, um, you might need, you know, more weapons to service that target than you otherwise would if you had a, a JDAM that you know that, hey, I can hit this thing like, you know, right through the pickle barrel, um, as it were, uh, or a laser guided bomb, you know, hey, I can put the laser on there and I can make this bomb fly exactly to the laser, uh, then maybe you don't need it to carry as many weapons with you um, and ingress through. So that that's kind of another um, consideration from a logistics side of that how many bombs does this um, target actually need? And then with a lot of with guided bombs, um, you can shape the parameters of how the bomb is going to hit the target. So if you need to have a high impact angle, say an 85 degree impact angle, uh, because you have a penetrating case on the bomb uh, and you need the bomb to, you know, go through a few floors or, you know, wherever, um, then, usually unguided bombs are not going to be able to have that effect because you're not going to be able to shape the parameters in which they actually hit um, with any degree of, you know, uh, 
what I call bettable accuracy, you know, that you would be able to bet a paycheck or bet your wingman that that bomb would hit um, and destroy the building. So that to answer your question, we do uh, train to kind of that old school way of, uh, of approaching, you know, a target and getting in there. But at the end of the day, I mean, you got to figure your, if you send in a four ship, you're sending a four ship into a highly contested area with, uh, you know, four $56 million airplanes and eight crew members. And you're trying to drop dumb gravity bombs on a target. That's, you know, if it's highly defended, then your ROI is probably, you know, your return on investment probably isn't, isn't the best or your risk level or your, you know, what you want to do with those airplanes, uh, you know, essentially you would probably look to more of a, uh, JASM, you know, or a standoff weapon option or something to that effect, uh, or a guided weapon of some kind or something that you could get, um, a little bit more insurance that your um, your eight air crew aren't going to be POWs based on the fact that you want to drop a bomb that uh, you know was similar to the ones used in Vietnam to take out a target that is you know you're unsure if it can actually even get the effects on the target. So I suppose I was thinking. It's probably it's maybe a false equivalent. Maybe it's inappropriate, but I was thinking you referenced earlier about taking Korean War tactics and taking them to Vietnam and finding they didn't work. And and similarly, there was a philosophy. It wasn't a philosophy actually. It was a doctrinal change um, around the use of missiles for long range uh, air to air combat and the death of the, the dogfight. And of course, that also transpired to be um, incorrect. Um, um, and I suppose I was just thinking. Uh, you know, there is this assumption, it goes back to what you were talking about a minute ago, which is what are the range of possibilities in terms of simulating what the bad guy can do or what they will do. Um, but there's this assumption that if you're going to go in and you have a, a sort of a, a very net-centric um, uh, sense of fusion, um, electronic attack, um, networked type game plan, that the bad guys can take that away from you. They can jam those networks. They can interfere with those networks. That If you're using bombs that require you to uh, transmit back to the guided weapon as it enters the terminal phase of guidance, which target to go after, you know, GBU-15, AGM-130, that kind of thing, um, those links could be jammed. And I wondered whether, you know, maybe it's a very, very outside chance you actually may end up, if you went up against someone like um, China, let's say, you may end up having all of your toys taken away from you, all of the tech mitigated and you need to revert to some of the traditional methods of getting the job done do you think that's too outlandish a a a, a, a scenario um no I, I mean i don't think it's super outlandish i think uh you know i mean anything is possible and uh i don't know if you've read ghost fleet or not because uh, it sounds like that's kind of the uh the scenario that you're alluding to but um i also think that there should be a level of um, technical uh, evolution and innovation that happens on a uh, decentralized um, in a decentralized way to be able to solve problems uh, faster than they um, faster than you would have to gamble all of your forces on um, doing suicidal missions um, and 
you know, if you think back to uh, even World War II, something like bomber escort with the Mustangs and understanding the, you know, when external wing uh, drop tanks were created, they were created to solve a problem. And, and I think that uh, you could argue that, hey, the, you know, the Germans took away some of our ability to produce these parts or they took away some ability for us to get into or they moved their factories way further south. So it was outside of the range of most um, uh, fighter escorts. Uh, I guess we're just going to have to figure it out with what we have uh, at the time. So some of that is 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 certainly true, but then some of it's like, okay, well, h- how do we come up with maybe an innovative way to solve these problems that we're having with what um, with what materials and what uh, uh, technologies are available to us? And then that's when you gather all of your um, all of your people together and say, hey, listen, can we do? You know, what would it take to do a drop tank? Um, you know, or several drop tanks on a Mustang, or can we take out, you know, can we put, you know, can we add to this fuselage tank? Can we, you know, do whatever it is? Can we solve these problems? And uh, can we solve them on the front line rather than solving them back at, you know, the, the factory or back at, you know, industry headquarters? Um, so what I would like to think is that the DOD is taking a look at, you um, how do I form this type of decision-making, this type of problem-solving where I can, I don't have to just accept that, um, you know, boys, we're going to load up some Mark 82s and Mark 84s and, you know, 80% of you are going to get shot down because, you know, we need to be inside of X miles to release this. Uh, and that's just how it is. You know, um, I think that um, if we look at the, uh, tactical evolution of history. I think that some people have done that. Uh, and, um, but I think that others may have, uh, have come up with a little bit more innovative, uh, ways to solve problems. And, 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 and maybe the, the initial systems that they put to work, uh, didn't work, you know, like, like you're saying, you know, you can, you can jam the links of, uh, you know, a lot. I mean, that jamming is pretty easy. GPS jamming is pretty, um, you know, pretty cost effective. Um, so, so how, how do you score that cat? Well, Hey, you know, can I use, you know, when INS doesn't need GPS, well, what kind of accuracy can we get out of this INS? Well, can we move this INS to this weapon system or can we do this? You know, how would that, um, what kind of, you know, programming would that take? Or, you know, it's amazing what you can do with like a raspberry Pi. you know, for as far as like computing power goes, Hey, can we, do we need it to do, these computations to be able to get, you know, or I don't know. The, I, I guess my point is that hopefully we, we are creating a system in which we can create uh, answers to problems that we don't know exist yet um, when it comes to that sort of uh, those tactical problem sets. Um, it would kind of, um, I guess I would kind of uh, take it back to, I think during the first and second world war, right. Um, we kept horses around for a long time because, uh, people weren't, uh, they didn't believe much in, um, uh, combustion engines and transportation as far as reliability goes. Uh, but then we eventually figured out that we can, you know, most of the army is equipped with, you know, combustion engines and turbine vehicles and all that sort of stuff. So then we can slowly start to, 
get rid of our horses. Um, and then now the horse cavalry was the, used to be the bastion of, uh, you know, all that was combat, um, because it was reliable because horses were reliable and all this. And now we're saying, well, you know, we can use a little bit more technology <laughs> substituted in there, find some problems, solve things, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not, you know, it could be all. Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying. I think um, there's a my, there's a memory um, a story so that sticks in my mind. Somebody a striking guy telling me that he had flown against a training um, aircraft that had a a Durfin jammer, a digital radio frequency, uh, frequency modulation jammer, which apparently you can build for ten a penny and you can stick them in something small like a light aircraft. Um, and he said that the Durfin jammer shut down his radar, so I'm guessing he was using. Um, well, I don't know if it was the ABG 70 or 63, probably 63. Um, uh, but, it, but it just shocked him. Um, and the idea you, you talked about, well, um, you know, in, in a scenario against a bad guy, well, if, if, uh, you know, they've got a bunch of aircraft, but these are all civilians, you can't shoot them down. What if they put a load of Durfin jammers in civilian aircraft and then they go around jamming everyone's radars? And if, you know, they're that effective, it's not just that they, spoil your picture or make it difficult for you to find the bad guy or whatever you know find fixed target track uh, engage it then actually just shuts your radar down and then that would be a, a big concern so I, I guess it's just the art of the possible isn't it it's, it's as you describe it's how far do you want to take the scenario and um um you know what's realistic and what's not but i, I wanted to ask thing, just just a final question for me if it's okay and then i'll and then i've got a couple of ama questions from the discord channel that, that i run uh for 10 percent true um sure. one of the things that we don't really ever talk about or i don't talk about um but i'm curious about is the mission planning software that you use um i did see you know as, as a result of some of the exposure i've had being invited to go and fly with squadrons and, and visit them i've so i've seen uh i think it's called falcon view uh, i don't know if it's still that's still what you use but um you know a piece of software that lets you um, do your weaponeering and understand if you want to, you know, kill a target, what's the best way to do it in terms of, you know, weapons effects and so on. Has that evolved much? Uh, do you have a way of sort of mission fly, fly through where you can pre-visualize what it is that you're going to be doing as a, either a pilot or a two ship or a four ship? Um, is the mission planning process more involved now than it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago? Um, I think yes, uh, yes and no. Uh, some parts of it are more automated, but some of the automated options give you a um, really just give you too many options to go down about how you're going to you know, attack a target. And sometimes you can spend too much time in mission planning uh, trying to find the 100% solution when really what you need is sort of the 80% or 85% solution uh, based on all the unknowns that you'll probably uh, come across in combat. Um, but the software that we use now is called jumps. Um, and, uh, it, you can pretty much do everything from normal flight planning on it to, uh, all, there's all, there's really a lot of stuff that you can do. Um, and there's great capabilities, um, that you can, uh, get into on how you want to egress, um, you know, around surface air missiles or how you want to plan an attack or where your what formation you need to be in to ensure that bombs hit, you know, at exactly a specific time or a specific distance apart or um, where the um, sniper pod is going to be able to laze things without masking on the jet. You know, that there's a whole 
list of things that you can do as far as mission planning goes that models stuff for you and does um, um, some really great points uh, that you can. Um, and it's kind of come a long ways, um, but the more options that you seem to get on it, the more bugs uh, that get into the program, and then the slower the program seems to run. Um, so you can have a couple instances where you know, you'll work up this big scenario and you'll be just ready to uh, print and then the computer will crash and then you just put all this work into it and then you can't pull it out, so to speak. Um, so um, there's there's that. So some guys, you know, are, would rather just write on a map, you know, and show you like, you know, kind of a kind of old school there. And, and, and I really can't blame them, um, you know, or run some rules of thumb like numbers about how to do an attack or anything like that. But, but yeah, they, um, there's a, um, combine that with some tools that we have on, um, you know, different classification ends and different, uh, imagery sources and different, um, ways to model, um, uh, bomb penetration effects, um, or, you know, what kind of fuse that you need for what specific building, all that stuff. Um, if you combine all those things together, I mean, it's, uh, there's some really great cool stuff out there. Um, and you can, you can pretty much solve most scenarios, uh, that way. Can you do a mission run through them? Would you, will, will you, could you like, cause I think, I mean, I visited, um, the tornado guys up at Lossiemouth probably 15, no, 10, 10 or so years ago. Um, and they were using a, a planning tool that let you do a run through. So you hit play effectively and it would show you from the front seat, what everything was going to look like and you could um you know you could make the the bubbles of um, surface to a missiles appear so you could see where you were relative to their uh, missile engagement zone um do, i mean do you do you have that capability or, or more importantly really i guess what i'm asking is do you use it if you have it i mean is it valuable to you to pre-visualize what you're going to fly we uh, there, there's some points of that uh that we use and and some guys will use uh, some products that let you, um, if you're going to do like a low level attack, like when are you going to actually see the target? When are you going to, uh, um, what does it look like, you know, as it's, as you're maneuvering and you're trying to find the target, what are the lead in features, uh, from your perspective at, you know, 500, 300 feet or whatever. Um, so we, we do use that. Um, but normally, uh, what we do is we just take and we brief, um, we brief the run through of everything kind of the, I wouldn't say the old fashioned way, but we try to talk about as many contingencies as we can while we're doing the run through, um, rather than, you know, watching a video feed, uh, or a video playback of exactly what's happening, um, or, or what the computer imagines were to happen. When we come back from the debrief, um, sometimes you can take all the ACMI data, you know, you can put it back to, uh, I think, down at Checker Flag, they have a really cool system where you can actually see people shooting at each other at the same, you know, same times. And you see this whole air war happen, which is really cool. Um, and they're able to pair shots and, you know, it's, it's, it's actually quite phenomenal. Um, but uh, we, we use some of the debriefing tools like that. But as far as the uh, uh, just sitting there and watching, um, you know, a video exact playbook, I, we don't typically... Uh, use that or really yeah okay let me pull up some questions and there aren't that many you'll be pleased to know have you got time for this 
Yeah, of course. Okay, excellent. Um, all right, so so Scotty is um, a massive uh, Eagle Strike Eagle fan, so he's uh, he's provided three questions. Have a look here. Um, do you ever train for, or is there such a thing as single pilot mission in the Strike Eagle without any Wizzo? Um, or is, it, or is, <laughs> no. it, how, is having Wizzo a requirement for a flight? Uh, generally speaking, yes. Um, there is a, I mean, there is a once in a while um, training happenstance where you have where you might have a single pilot you know airplane where they strap down the back seat and that almost never happens and usually that has to do with wizzo availability um uh or, or maybe you have to move a jet somewhere and you know they can't get any uh, all, all the wizards are flying other jets or something and there isn't that many um then you might have that um uh, but that happens it's a extremely rare um for that to happen overall and normally you train to fly as a uh pilot wizzo combination and then that's generally how you execute uh overall okay he's, he's technically very familiar with the airplane so he's asking um has anybody ever spoken about improving the cft throughout your time in the airplane um with the ex keeping more or less the same cft that makes me think um that there must be a way to improve the cfts uh, if we're going to keep flying them well into the future. And with all the bruise on the cheeks not usable for air-to-air and not even removable from the look of it, is there a performance on the table that could probably pick up? So I guess he's asking, yeah, are they going to improve? Are they going to make one where you can take those bruise off uh, to make it slick, slicker, improve some of those performance or um, excess power issues you were talking about? So we've actually, it's funny that, um, and, and that's a really great question, actually, because um, it's something we've talked about in the bar numerous times, because uh, anybody with the E model, uh, when you look at it, you see the Brew 46s on the top there, and you, they, they rarely ever get used. Um, the Brew 47s, um, you know, will get used, but the Brew 46s generally don't. Um, and they're super draggy, and uh, they just eat away gas uh, that can be used for a number of different things. Um, but and so we've, we've, we've talked about, hey, um, you know, is there ability to put like some sort of sleek covers on them, you know, to, to be able to reduce their, uh, drag signature by a little bit, or is there a, a ability to actually, you know, take them off? And, uh, and usually the answer we get back is no, you know, you got, you just got to leave them on, suffer through it. Um, the, as far as the EX goes, um, I wouldn't, uh, the EX, uh, for all the little niche, um, improvements that it had, uh, none of them were very like profound, uh, improvements, um, in, in, in the airframe and, and, and all of them were, you know, nickel and dimed, uh, to a, uh, you know, Hey, yeah, we could do this, but we're going to charge you a lot of money to do it. So, you know, do you still want to do it or not? Um, so whether or not that, you know, the, the transformation between all of them being brew 47s or, or at, at least, you know, uh, 1760 capable, um, you know, uh, it, it is a whole different story, but, but yeah, the, the, the shoulder stations on there, the, the brew 46s would be nice if we could cover them up. There's been no talk of, um, uh, of covering them up. I think I don't hold me to it, but I think I remember while I was at Lake and Heath, um, there was some study that someone did where in an air to air roll, they, with the two twenty nine motors, they took off the CFTs, and at certain regimes of flight, uh, you were actually at a uh, better fuel-saving perspective of without the CFTs on there um, and the reduced fuel load than you were 
with the CFTs and a higher drag index. So, um, and I think that was just with 229 jets. I'm not 100% sure that um, there's much of a difference with 220s or it may have been vice versa. I don't, I don't quite remember, but um, there was something to be said about just removing the CFTs if you're going to air to air uh, and basically turning it into a more powerful um, C model uh, with the 229 motors. Um, because the, the 229 motors, you know, you pull them back um, at high altitude and, and uh, kind of sip gas, uh, as it were. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I would prefer to get rid of the uh, Brew 46s, and I don't even really think we use them all that much um, in the, uh, you know, in the Strike Eagle. Uh, the, the 229s are really kind of a tricky beast because um, if you go anywhere hot, um, you're sort of – you're – Either your takeoff and landing data suffers, um, especially your max support, and whether or not you're you, you get to a point where if you lose an engine, you can neither abort nor take off um, based on the load that you're at. So you're kind of in no man's land when it comes to that, and then you have to take a cable at the end of the runway, um, and that's kind of a trend line with hot days and loaded up two twenties. So the more bombs that you put on the jet, sometimes you, you get to a point of diminishing returns when it comes to drag as well. And um, the 500-pounders, the 2,000-pound bombs are just ridiculous as far as the amount of gas and the amount of fuel that they take up. And if we could get into something like nanoenergetics where you can get um, a lot bigger bang for the buck and a lot bigger bang for the, uh, for the drag index, then that would be the way to go. Um, and I would like to see something that was different than the brew setup. But the brew uh, 46s and 47s are enormously simple. They're easy and they fit with the amount of quantity of weapons that we have. And obviously all you really need is the lugs on the bombs to be able to fit them in there. So um, it, it's actually a really great question though. I would love to be able to put covers on this. We, we think about every time I walk up to the jet, uh, you know, most of us think the exact same thing of that. These things are just useless drag, you know, creators sticking out there. His, his final question then was, uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, the Agile Combat Employment Ace for using the Strike Eagle as a bomb truck? Um, he says, from the sound of this program, these ferry eagles are going to be on station as well as ferrying the bombs at the same time. Um, are they even capable of dropping all those bombs if needed? Um, and he says, being hands-off, JDAM, drag might not be a con- might be the main concern, here, but what's your thought on this being both combat effective directly by dropping bombs or indirectly by helping on standing up remote deployments? Um, so yeah, I guess getting back to the Brew 46 argument, <laughs> um, the, uh, the, yeah, so recently they came up with the ability to basically load up the, um, the Strike Eagle with JDAMs for uh, all stations, um, all the CFT stations, not just the 1760 stations. So um, the... There, to my knowledge, and I'm not really deep on the program on that, but um, to, to, to my knowledge, they cannot uh, drop any of the shoulder stations, any of the um, uh, JDAMs when it comes to that. So, there, so there's kind of a strict ferry only, um, you know, when it comes to that. And, and there's no real communication with the jet that happens on um, on the uh, the uh, the Brew 46 station. So um, the to answer his question with, uh, how do I think about the ACE? Um, I, I think it's, it's the ACE overall concept is, uh, it, it, I think it's important. 
Um, and, you know, I'm initially skeptical of it uh, at first, and, you know, but, uh, but I think it's super important. The whole idea uh, with carrying the bombs and all that sort of stuff is that you're um, expanding your logistics uh, network to say that now we don't need just a C-17 full of weapons or we don't need to allocate all these um, uh, mobility assets to be able to provide for a, uh, a strike fighter group, you know, somewhere we can carry bombs to the fight ourselves or we can go back and forth or basically we can do more with what we have. And I think if you look at a theater like Europe, it makes a lot of sense um, when it comes to dispersing your forces out. Um, Should you have some sort of, you know, uh, apocalypse, you know, happen when it comes to targeting stuff and then uh, fighter bases are especially uh, vulnerable. So now you spread out, you know, you complicate the enemy's targeting problem. Um, and then you expand on your logistics because if you had 30 or 40 of these, uh, different fighter, uh, operating locations, you probably would have trouble coordinating, um, especially if your comms were down, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you would have trouble coordinating for, uh, logistics backfill on weapons and, you know, supplies, all that sort of stuff. So the more that you can do organically, generally speaking, the better, uh, which is one of the options and said, Hey, can we do this? Uh, you know, we should be able to, if we can hang these bombs based on the lugs, well, we should be able to ferry them. Okay, great. Um, but we just can't drop them, you know, from those stations. So, uh, no big deal, uh, there as far as, uh, like, you know, it's a strike Eagle, a big bomb truck. Uh, yeah, I, I think, um, I, I think that's probably pretty accurate. Um, I think it depends depends on i think we have to do a lot of soul searching on what the bang for the buck for a jdam actually is as far as risk exposure and what targets that you're going after and whether or not those bombs are going to uh, satisfy or service a target uh, and then what other options that you have to be able to do that and what options that you have um, you know, Strike right now doesn't carry APKWS, which is a forward firing uh, rocket based on the Zuni platform. Um, but, you know, if the Strike Eagle maybe had APKWS or some other cheaper alternative to uh, what they're doing right now, uh, you might be able to trade those munitions with uh, Apache units or F 16s or et cetera. And then now we, you know, come up with a little bit better maybe a little bit better solution on how to solve uh, logistics problems for, for deployed units uh, overall. So uh, opening up the ACE can of worms, um, I think it's really good. And it also challenges a lot of pilots and flight leads to start thinking about uh, how do I operate uh, outside of that structure, that uh, very structured environment that we were just talking about um, what kind of defines everyday life um, for most fighter squadrons. You know, how do I land at a field that may not have all the, um, you know, ground support that I need or a ground support that I'm used to? You know, how do I, how do I coordinate for fuel? How do I do all this sort of stuff? Just like we were talking about all these skill sets that we use, uh, you know, in civilian flying all the time. Now, you know, fighter guys have to start thinking about them, um, which is all this big turn of irony here. Um, but in any case, hopefully that, that answers the question. So, Jalorian21 asks, um, how does selection work for CSO slots? Um, how is someone selected for a NAV or WISO versus EWO slot? And um, is it assigned before UCT or do you compete for it while you're in UCT? 
That's a great question. Uh, and to be quite honest with you, I don't really know. Uh, I can, the program has evolved, uh, quite a bit since I was there and the, 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 the way that it happened while I was there, um, everybody enters as a CISO or the, you know, CSO, the combat systems officer. And then, um, you all do the exact same program. And then like three weeks prior to the program ending is when you get your drop night and then you get assigned to the airplane based on how you did in the class and your preferences. And then, um, after that you do top off training that is more airframe specific. So for the fighter guys, you do some, you know, uh, make believe air to air intercepts in the sim, you know, for maybe some of the EWO guys, you'd get back into the, the beeps and squeaks and, you know, identifying, you know, all the stuff that they do. Uh, so that happened now from what I've heard, I think they do a track select, uh, right now to where, you know, halfway through the program, you kind of decide or they kind of decide whether you want to go on a, like a, a strike track maybe um, for like fighters and bombers or I, f- I forget they, they kind of divide it up into tracks and then um, and then you get a little bit more specialized and then um, uh, once you go down that road for a while and, and you get more uh, skills that are uh, adaptable to fighters or bombers then um, that's when you get into uh, airframe specific choices um, you know prior to your uh, drop night there whether you're going to go strike eagle or b1 or you know, B-52 or whatever. So hopefully that, uh, and as far as like actually getting a CISO versus a pilot slot, um, that is uh, totally depends on what commissioning source that you go through. So I went through OTS um, and I think on my, my initial board, there was like nine pilot slots out of 1,100 applicants. A hundred of those applicants got picked up uh, and there was like, 40 CISO slots, I think. Um, so now each year, depending on what board you're on, it could be, you know, 40 pilot slots and nine CISO slots or something. Uh, who knows? But um, so they normally rack and stack what they think that your um, application, you know, is going to be best for, for whatever it is. And I don't really know how they um, do that. A couple of us were scratching our heads because they put a lot of guys who are professional pilots uh, who had really good PICSUM and AFOQT scores uh, into CISO slots. And then they put a lot of people into pilot slots that had no previous flying experience and had marginal uh, PICSUM and AFOQT pilot scores. Uh, and then they went on to, to pilot training. Some of them uh, washed out at what we had was initial flight screening um, while we were there and decided that, and they hadn't flown before, uh, IFS was the first time that they flew. They decided flying wasn't for them. And then the air force wasted a pilot slot on someone who resigned before they even started pilot training. And on the other hand, you had a bunch of guys who, um, took CISO slots, but they would rather have a pilot slot or they were, you know, previously a professional pilot before, but they couldn't slide into that pilot slot. Um, so they, cause they were committed to the CISO slot. So, um, I, I don't really know what kind of magic goes on behind closed doors about how they rack and stack people or who does it, or who's familiar with what program or how, what attributes that they, um, say, Hey, he's going to go to a nav, you know, or he's going to go to a pilot. Um, once you get into ROTC and the Academy, I think it's a lot more about, um, they have a lot more, uh, 
pilot slots available. Uh, so pretty much, you know, if you qualify for it, then you can get it, um, you know, with certain ex- uh, exceptions. And then some people who are not are medically uh, not qualified to be a pilot uh, will go the CISO road. Um, so what I've seen at least is from the ROTC and Academy perspective is that a lot of people who go to uh, CISO school that are from those commissioning pipelines are usually because uh, they couldn't get a medical waiver in either on time or they just couldn't, or they got denied a medical waiver or something precluded them from um, being otherwise qualified for that slot. Every once in a while you meet somebody who that was their first choice um, because that's what they wanted to do for a while. But those are usually kind of rare within the field uh, to, um, to see. Last question then um, for you, same, 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 same person asking, um, just um, any advice that you would give to anybody wanting to get into the strike eagle community? It sounds like he or she may have a UPT or, or, or sort of a UCT option available to them, but they're just asking any particular advice. Um, yeah. So, sorry, this person actually says, so, so Jay Lorian 21 says I'm in my first year of Afrozzi. So any advice for them to get into the uh, strike? Uh, yeah, I would say that, um, I think that if you're in your first uh, year of RTC, um, uh, I would probably spend time, uh, sowing the right seeds for the future as far as, um, cause, uh, between ROTC and between um, OTS and, you know, the Academy and stuff, there, there's a certain amount of Kool-Aid that you're going to have to drink when it comes to, um, you know, playing by the rules and, and being part of the, um, being part of the team and, and, and buying a lot of the um, process about how everything happens and being, uh, you know, um, being in on all that what I would say is uh, try to do your absolute best at everything you can um, on your end and make sure that um, all of your school grades are, you know, get A's in every class that you possibly can um, help out everybody else and um, become a, um, a well-liked individual within your RTC unit um, and, you know, work hard um, to all the little things that you can and develop great relationships with people and don't, uh, discount, uh, people because they think, or you think that they might not be able to help you get to your goal. I would say that try to just, uh, develop great relationships, uh, with everybody, uh, you know, be as likable as you can get as good grades as you can. Um, and then what you'll do is, um, especially when it comes to like the AFOQT or, um, any of the standardized testing, just try to get the best scores that you can and find a way. And, uh, with, I think with like the TBAS, uh, and then with the PIXM score, uh, I think it's what pilot candidate selection method or something like that, uh, that takes a portion of your flight hours. Uh, just try to figure out a way to get flight hours for cheap. If you're not already flying, uh, there's multiple ways, whether it's through civil air patrol, uh, is one of those ways. Uh, Another way is just you know, washing airplanes at the airport and, and bumming uh, flight time with the CFI, um, you know, who's on the airfield or something like that. And, and anyways, a lot of those things will start to pay off later on. And 
uh, as the Air Force goes through changes, whether it's, um, you know, it, it kind of ebbs and flows on if they're going to take a lot of pilots one year or they're going to take a lot of, uh, you know, CISOs the next year. They're going to they're going to tone down the amount of air crew that they take overall or the amount of fighter slots are going to go down. Every advantage that you can give yourself um, when times get tough is going to pay off enormously. And it may seem like getting a, you know, uh, working hard to get an A in a class that you don't really like that much may seem very pedantic. Um, eventually, that's going to be another feather in your hat when things get tough and, you know, somebody's going to choose you over the next guy, you know, hopefully, um, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and then once you get to pilot training, I would say that, you know, I would make it I wouldn't be over the top, but I would definitely keep your focus on, you know, going to fighters, uh, you know, if, if that's what you want to do, uh, keep your focus on that and just realize that a lot of the pain in UPT or UCT is, is, is very, very temporary. And, um, you just have to kind of, you know, nod, smile and get through it. And then you'll poke fun at everybody uh, once you graduate. And then you'll remember some of your asshole instructors and they'll still be assholes, you know, late, later on. And, and then um, you'll you'll kind of look back on it and either, either you'll appreciate um, what they taught you or you'll appreciate the fact that you'll never be like they'll be, you know, you know what I mean? Or you'll make it your life's goal never to, when you become an instructor, not to be like them. Um and, uh, it, it, uh, real quick, I remember what, when I was at UBT, I, um, I, I flew a ride with this, uh, with this Dutch, uh, major who had a reputation that, you know, he's the hardest possible guy to fly with. He always gets in your head and always makes you second guess every decision that you ever made, you know, and, uh, he's super sarcastic and you never knew if you passed the ride or if you failed the ride and, um, and he, you know, he, he had a reputation for, you know, hooking way more students than he passed. And just, if, if you saw your name on the schedule with him, you're just like, you know, contemplate another airframe or think that, you know, maybe you're going to go, you know, fly a heavy or something, or that's it, or you're done. Um, and I remember I flew with them and, uh, I flew a very, uh, stressful ride, um, with them that was a, it turned into two rides because it's what we call an out and back, uh, in a T-38 and it was a very, uh, important, uh, instrument ride. And, uh, he did that. He was in my head the whole entire time. He was making me second guess every decision. I was just, um, you know, every, every time I would do something, he'd say, Oh, you, you sure about that? You know, and you, you thought you were doing something wrong. And anyways, um, I was very frustrated, uh, with him, um, the whole entire time. And, and then now in hindsight, I said, you know what, like the stuff that he did there really prepared me for, um, how to deal with real life distractions and when, you know, trying to get your focus back. And then, um, ultimately it was really good. Uh, and, and I look back on like, it was just such a positive thing to fly with that guy, even though he was the hardest, um, you know, the, 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 the meanest instructor to fly with, uh, it, it seemed to work out just. Uh, just fine. So, uh, when you come up to somebody like that, I would say, um, just take it in stride and, um, you know, just take notes for the future. And, and one day you'll look back and you'll say that, Hey man, if I had a, you know, real shitty instructor in ROTC, who was giving me a hard time. I either found someone I didn't want to be like, or I found someone who's going to inspire me to do, uh, 
um, you know, better and push through. So that would be my, my humble advice. Stinger, thanks very much. Appreciate it.